0: How can we find out what God expects of us? After someone decides to follow Jesus, do they need to live any differently than they did before? Hi, I'm Yvonne Prent, and welcome to Bible 805. Today we're going to answer those questions in our lesson on the last of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And I'm subtitling this, God's Expectations for His People Then and Now. After the children of Israel were miraculously brought out of Egypt, God didn't just turn them loose in the desert and tell them to do whatever they wanted to do. It's the same for us today, and that's why this lesson is so important for us to study carefully. Once we become a believer in Jesus, we can't simply live however we want to. Now the examples in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, they're not just outdated stories. They will really help us learn how to do this. As we study Study them. We'll understand more clearly God's expectations in how He wants us to live, how He wants us to represent Him. Study the books of the Bible in this way isn't just my idea. I'd like to share with you two passages out of the New Testament that encourage us to do pretty much the same thing. First of all, in Romans 15, 4, in today's Living Bible, it says, These things that were written in the Scriptures so long ago are to teach us patience and to encourage us so that we will look forward expectantly to the time when God will conquer sin and death. And then this next passage goes, into it even a little bit more. In 1 Corinthians 10, it says, Remember our history, friends, and be warned. By the way, this is in the Message Translation. All our ancestors were led by the providential cloud and taken miraculously through the sea. They went through the waters in a baptism like ours, as Moses led them from enslaving death to salvation life. They all ate and drank identical food and drink, meals provided daily by God. They drank from the rock, God's fountain for them that stayed with them wherever they went, and the rock was Christ. But just experiencing God's wonder and grace didn't seem to mean much. Most of them were defeated by temptation during the hard times in the desert, and God was not pleased. The same thing could happen to us. We must be on guard so that we never get caught up in wanting our own way as they did. And we must not turn our religion into a circus as they did. First the people partied, then they threw a dance. We must not be sexually promiscuous. They paid for that, remember, with 23,000 deaths in one day. We must never try to get Christ to serve us instead of us serving him. They tried it and God launched an epidemic of poisonous snakes. We must be careful not to stir up discontent. Discontent destroyed them. These are all warning markers. Danger! In our history books, written down so that we don't repeat their mistake. Actually, I could probably quit after reading that passage because that summarizes pretty much what we're going to be talking about through the rest of the lesson. But in summary, God specifically tells us that the Old Testament was written for us. It was written as an example for us. We have it so that we won't make the same mistake, so that we'll learn. Now, of course, the Lord knows that we learn best from stories instead of just leaving us the Ten Commandments, and that was it. The whole Old Testament shows how people lived, whether they carried these things out or not, and then what were the consequences. Human nature doesn't change. And the same things that trip them up can trip us up. So God expects us to study the history of the Old Testament, to learn from it, and to apply it. That's why in my teaching, I try to give you first a summary of what happened, the history, the facts, but then go into application. And to tell you the truth is, I was preparing this and I realized just how important application is from what we see in the Old Testament, I decided I probably need to do that a little bit more. My general tendency as someone who loves history is to want to really focus on the history and show you all these little details and things like that. And that's important because I want you to know that what we believe is grounded in true history. But what's really important is how we apply and how we live what we read about in the Old Testament. So, let's get back into the lesson. The background, of course, is when they left Egypt. It's important for us to remember that they were simply this mob of slaves. We forget that. We tend to always think of Israel as a very strong national entity, as a nation, as a distinct group of people. But they weren't like that when they left Egypt. They had no unity. They had no national sense in many ways. They knew they were the descendants of the same people, but, but that was pretty much it. So God had to teach them everything. He had to teach them how to worship, how to govern their nation, how to live their interpersonal lives. And now let's review what happened to them and how God does this. Okay, first of all, in Exodus, we talked about this a little bit in our previous lesson, so I'll go over it fairly quickly. God hears the cry of Israel. They had been in bondage for 430 years. God had promised that he would take them out of that land. He'd made that promise 430 years earlier to Abraham. God, after supernaturally giving Moses the training that he would need and then having him think about it for 40 years in the desert, God then calls him to go back and deliver the people. He confronts Pharaoh the work gets harder, there are a series of plagues culminating with the death of the firstborn and finally at that time Pharaoh says leave, he lets the people go and they start out towards the promised land. But then right away a huge challenge comes and that is they get to the Red Sea, they are trapped on the one side by the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is coming after them because he realizes what he has lost with all of these slaves. And again go back to the movie, The Ten Commandments. This is something usually everyone can identify with. And that very, very powerful scene where God parts the Red Sea, they walk through to the other side. Now, one would assume, after going through that experience at the Red Sea, that you would trust God for anything, absolutely forever, never doubt Him again. But sadly, That is not what happened. Shortly after that, they get into the desert, and their biggest trial at first is water, and this is something that's going to be coming up again and again throughout their entire journey. They get to a place called Mar, where the water is bitter. Moses throws a piece of wood into the water on the command of God. It becomes sweet. Then they go to an oasis of Elam, where there are 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and I would imagine, and I could be totally wrong, I didn't actually check this out that perhaps they were date palm trees or they may not have have mentioned that so specifically but they continue on now it's about six weeks after they've left Egypt, and food is starting to run out, and they're hungry, and they start complaining. God answers their complaints in Exodus 16, 4, where it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Yes, he was giving them food to meet their needs, but please note that phrase, I will test them. He told them that they would have testing, that this is going to be part of their experience. And we're told the same things as believers today. Remember in John sixteen thirty-three, Jesus said, I've told you these things so that in me, you might have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And what we learned from watching Israel is it wasn't just one test and it won't be for us. That is part of our life as followers of the one true God. Now the manna came every day, it was the same, but it was always and it was always enough. But how did the people respond? They, always, they have two choices, and we have the same choices today. When we have blessings and we have trials, we can either look at what we should be thankful for. They could have praised God every single day, jointly just saying, this is so extraordinary. We don't have to work. We don't have to grow things. We don't have to do anything. And we're provided with food. This is fantastic. But they didn't do that, did they? They complained, and they complained, and they complained. And we have the same challenge today. God gives us so many things. And what do we do with what he gives us? Do we focus on the blessings, or do we focus on the things that there is to complain about? Well, they travel along as we travel along. Again, no water. In this instance, God tells Moses, strike the stone and water will gush out from them, and that will be for the people. He does that, and that happens. Then after they get water again, then their first big battle. Now, this is really interesting for for a number of reasons. So bear with me for a few minutes. Uh, they are attacked by the Amalekites. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau, and they were one of the roving bands that went, they, they didn't have any set place, they didn't have cities, they were just a roving band, and they were known for pillaging and trying to destroy people and take all their stuff and that kind of thing. So anyway, it's, it's, it's a pretty big deal fight. Moses tells Joshua to assemble an army to go out and fight them, and he's going to go up on a mountaintop, and he is going to pray for them. And many of you know the story of so long as Moses' hands are raised in prayer, they're winning, and then he gets tired, and so Aaron and her hold up his hands, and they win the battle. This story has been used many times as an encouragement to pray, and how we always need to pray for spiritual Success. But Charles Spurgeon adds an additional application on this. This is incredibly important, I think, for not only for the children of Israel then, but for all of us today. And that is what Spurgeon says is while Moses was up on the mountain praying, and he was being literally helped and held up in prayer, that's important. And we always need to pray and pray hard and pray with others for spiritual victory. However, At the same time, Joshua was down in the valley fighting bloody hand-to-hand combat. And we need to always remember in the battles that we face in life, there are always those two parts. Yes, we pray, but we also need to fight. And this is something that I think so often we forget. I know I'll forget it. I'll say, oh, Lord, help me to be successful in this or be successful in that. And then God says, well, what are you doing to make that happen? And usually there's something that we need to do, something very practical that we need a step we need to. Take and then we can ask for God's help and blessing when we just don't know what else to do. But we pray and we fight. One more thing that is very important to remember from this little incident, and you don't see it talked about a whole lot they fought a battle with the inhabitants of the land and they won. Later on, we'll see that they were afraid to fight, and they shouldn't have been. Early on, when they had just come out of Egypt, they weren't even trained as an army yet. They hadn't followed God for very long. They didn't know how he wanted them to live. But they were able to fight and win, and sadly, they forgot that later. Just another example to always remind ourselves how God has acted in the past. He's the same God. We need to remember that and trust Him for the things that come up. Finally, they arrive at Sinai, and this is, of course, where they're given the Ten Commandments. This is The Ten Commandments are, in some ways, the core, the summary of how they're supposed to live. They're also shown how to build the tabernacle, and the priesthood is given to Moses to explain to them. The laws that God gives to Moses cover every part of life. One of the things that this challenges us with is to remember that no part of our life is so small that God doesn't care about it. He cares about everything. In the New Testament, we're told to cast all our cares on Him because He cares for us. And the little things that might bother us or concern us, these are things He cares about. And He wants the very best for us in literally every area of life. But needless to say, that covered a lot of territory. And just in very practical terms, it would have taken a long time for God to give Moses all of this information. Unfortunately, the people got impatient. And here's what happened. It says in Exodus 32, the people saw that Moses took a long time coming down from the mountain. So they gathered around Aaron. They said to him, come, make us a God that will lead us. This fellow Moses brought us up out of Egypt, but we don't know what's happened to him. In their impatience and lack of trust, we know they built the golden calf and they started doing all sorts of crazy and wild ways of worshiping him. Well, one of the kind of interesting stories in the Long. Moses is up on the mountain and apparently Joshua was kind of halfway up there and he hollers at Moses and he says, Moses, Moses, there's another battle. Uh, people, the camp's being attacked and, and uh, Joshua, he's, he's got such a pure heart. I've always loved this story because he didn't even think that something like what was really going on could possibly be going wrong. But uh, Moses comes down from the mountain. Here he has the Ten Commandments that God has inscribed on the stone with him. And it says, As Moses approached the camp, he saw the calf. He also saw the people dancing. So he was very angry. He threw the tablets out of his hand. They broke into pieces at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf the people had made, he burned it in fire, then he ground it in to powder. He scattered it on the water and he made the Israelites drink it. He was not the most benevolent of rulers, but he was very, very angry. What they had done is to totally repudiate the God who had brought them out of Egypt. And in addition to this, many died in judgment at that time. Before we go on with this story, I want us to pause, and this is, I think, one of the most important warnings or lessons that we can get. And that is that timing is always an issue in obedience. That's what caused them to sin. They said, Moses took a long time. Now, that was their opinion. God did not tell them how long it would take. They just, they decided that it was taking too long, and so they sinned instead of waiting. We see this happen again and again in the Old Testament. We'll go into some of these lessons in more detail. But Saul, who was crowned the first king of Israel, he lost the kingship because he wouldn't wait for Samuel to come and do an offering when he was supposed to. He said, it's been three days and you didn't show up. And so the people people were were grumbling and I felt like I had to do this and Saul said no you know you you, basically you didn't trust God and the kingdom will be taken away from you. I think it's interesting where Saul said well it's been three days and then if you remember the story after Jesus rose from the dead he meets some some followers on the road to Emmaus and it says that his uh his identity was concealed from them. They didn't know it was Jesus. And they're telling him about what has happened. And one of them makes a comment, and it's already been three days since this happened. And they didn't realize till later that they were walking with the risen Christ who, according to God's plan, would rise on the third day. And so often, that is is something we need to be so afraid of, we will give in to a temptation or do something really dumb that if we would have just waited a little bit longer, it would have been much better. It would have been according to God's plan. One of the perfect examples of trusting God in timing, of course, is David, Who, when Saul was king, he had to wait 15 years from the time he was anointed until he became king. He had opportunities to kill Saul. He had opportunities in many ways to just grab the kingship prior to that time. But he said again and again, no, God will give it to me when it's his time. And I'm sure there were many times during those 15 years that David got very discouraged and was saying, how long, O Lord. And we might say the same thing, but God has his perfect time figured out. He is faithful. He always fulfills his promises. And the challenge, of course, for us is can we be faithful in trusting God no matter how long things seem to take? Well, God is so merciful, because even after the people sinned in the way they did, God still gives them his covenant. And he says in Exodus 34, then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. I will do wonderful things in front of all your people. I will do amazing things that have never been done before in any nation in the whole world. The people you live among will see the things that I, the Lord, will do for you. And they will see how wonderful those things really are. Obey what I command you today. I will... Drive out the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites to make room for you. Be careful. Do not make a peace treaty with those who live in the land where you are going. They will be a trap to you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down the poles they they use to worship the female goddess named Asherah. Do not worship any other god. God makes this promise to them, and later on we'll get into some of the if-then conditions of it. But the astounding thing is that throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you'll see how the people disobeyed again and again and again. But by grace, the covenant was never revoked. So let's go back now to the book of Leviticus. And in this book, it shows how a sinful people can approach a holy God. Now, there were several ways that are presented in this book. You have the mediation of the priests. You have the sacrifices that they offered. And having to see again and again this death of an innocent animal, it showed to the people how sin is ugly. Sin requires a blood sacrifice. We also see in a more positive note the commemorative feast and God sets aside time once a week with the Sabbath and then with the feast throughout the year for his people to rest and be refreshed. The book also goes into laws governing every aspect of the people's lives and it details the punishments for violations. Now I want to just briefly mention one of the things that it talks about and sadly this is something that they never obeyed in and that is in the book of Leviticus it talks about the sabbatical year and the year of jubilee and the sabbatical year was every seventh year they were supposed to let the land be fallow and just trust God that he would give them enough to harvest the previous year to see them through then the year of jubilee that was to be the 50th year and And during this year, it was supposed to be a time of great celebration where the land would revert to its original owners. All the slaves were to be set free. And God sums up his commands on this by saying that he was doing this because they were to remember that the Israelites are my servants. I brought them out of Egypt I am the Lord your God. And basically God is saying, you have to remember that you're my servants. So in many ways, what right do you have to hold on to slaves, to hold on to people, to hold on to land that really isn't yours? And the Jubilee was supposed to be a public declaration of this reality. Sadly, it was never obeyed. And one of the reasons that the land went into judgment, God says, I am going to give the land its Sabbaths. You would not do it. And now you're going to be taken out of the land and the land will rest. Now I don't want us to think about that a whole lot. What I want us to really learn and focus on as an application from this is where in the Old Testament he refers to the Israelites as his servants. But one thing that's really important for us to remember is that's also what our identification, who we are, that's our identity. In Mark 10:42 through 45, it said, Jesus called to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. We serve because Jesus gave that to us as his model. He says, that's how I lived my life. That's how I want you to live yours. We can't ever think we're we're some big, great, wonderful, fantastic thing. When we do the Lord's work, we're his servants. In 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, it says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Here, Paul, one of the greatest of the apostles, identifies himself and all of us as servants. Many of us are familiar with this verse in Matthew 25, where it says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, sadly, and I don't want to sound cynical or icky here, but many people want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, at the end of their life. But I think it behooves all of us to look at our lives and say, well, what am I doing to deserve those words? Am I acting like a servant? Am I being a good and faithful servant? And then 2 Timothy 2, 2 2.15, this gives us encouragement because it tells us how we can do that. It says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You see, to be a good worker, a good servant of God, he says, rightly handle the word of truth. And, of course, the obvious application is we need to know God's word. This leads right back to one of the key passages that we're discussing today, where in Leviticus, this gives a whole series of what are called the if-then statements of the covenant, where, first of all, God says, follow my rules. Again, you've got to know what they are to follow them. It goes on to say, be careful to obey my commands. And then he has all these promises that he will send them a good harvest, that he will give peace in the land, that he will live among them. But then he also gives them warnings of if they don't do that. If He says, on the other hand, suppose you do not listen to me, suppose you do not carry out my commands, suppose you say no to my rules and turn away from my laws, and suppose you break my covenant by failing to carry out all my commands, then this is what I will do to you. And he talks about how they will have sickness, how when they plant, it will not turn out good. Their enemies will win over them. And he says, if you still don't accept my warnings, and you continue to be my, enemy, then his punishment will increase, and finally, if it gets so bad, he will take them out of the land. Now, we will see what happens to them in the coming years. But keep this promise in mind that God was very clear that you are supposed to do what I command. And if you don't, there will be consequences. Now, we go; the book goes into a tremendous amount on how they were supposed to worship. The tabernacle was built. God's desire has always been to dwell with his people. He walked with humanity in the Garden of Eden then sin broke that connection and then the tabernacle was a picture of how God again wanted to be with his people and then of course at the end of the book of Revelation that God will make his dwelling among men but we have things like the tabernacle to picture what this means in between now this uh, everything in the tabernacle and unfortunately we don't have time to go into all of the details there will be some things I can I can link you to on the website that will explain it in more detail but everything in the tabernacle pictured something in the coming Messiah you would walk in through the outer courts and first of all there was the bronze altar where there was a sacrifice and without accepting the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross We cannot approach a holy God. And so, first of all, there was the sacrifice. And then there was the laver where they were washed. Once they have uh, made the appropriate sacrifice, we are washed from our sins. The holy place, there were specific items inside it that were a picture pointing ahead to the Messiah. There was the table of what's called showbread. It was literally bread on this table. Jesus comes as the bread of life. The golden candlesticks, of course, Jesus is the light of the world. And the altar of incense, the prayers of, oftentimes, incense is talked about as the prayers of the saints, but also Jesus, who is praying for us. And then, of course, inside, behind the curtain, inside the Holy of Holies, we have the Ark of the Covenant, where once a year, the blood was sprinkled on that during the Day of Atonement. Now, atonement simply means a cover That's all the blood did until the Messiah came, and then there were no more sacrifices. But all of these things showed the people that God was with them, that he had a plan for their coming and final salvation. Now, in the New Testament application on this, how we worship, there is a lot of flexibility on how we organize ourselves. We don't have the specific commands like they had in the Old Testament. But we are commanded that we are always to meet together. God formed a people back then. He is forming a people now. And in Hebrews 10.25 it said, Let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Now, we may not have specifics on how to set up our buildings, but as we meet together, the New Testament does give us many commands on how we are supposed to act towards one another in our corporate lives as members of the church. James, the book of James, tells us there's not supposed to be favoritism in the church, that we are to help people in need in very practical ways. In Second Corinthians, and I'm just pulling out some scattered things, the entire... New Testament is full of this, but in 2 Corinthians, there's a lot about giving, and in chapter 8, how people are supposed to give sacrificially, and the actual historical instance here is with another church that was in need. In Ephesians, it begins with the celebration of the gift of salvation. It talks about how by grace you're saved and it praises God's glorious future that he has planned for us. And then after setting all this up, in a way very reminiscent of God rescued his people out of Egypt, now this is how they're supposed to live. In Ephesians, God has saved us, and now this is how we are supposed to live. In chapter 4 it says, and now walk worthy of the calling that you've received and he gives a lot of specific commands on how we're supposed to talk to each other and honor each other and all sorts of relationship commands and then ends up with putting on the whole armor of God. Now just a few comments before we leave this whole section of the laws. Some of them seem very harsh and very strange but we have to remember that the people came out of a very idolatrous pagan culture, and they needed to be taught specifically how God wanted them to live. Actually, the laws for that time were some of the most humane in human history. I've talked about this in other lessons, but again, that commandment on just an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, actually that was saying that punishment is to be limited. You aren't to go beyond that. And that was really extraordinary for that day. Also, all of the laws were applied equally to to everyone. In every other society, there was huge stratification of, well, a slave was just disposable, and, and you could do all sorts of horrible things to them. But a noble person, they, they could be let off lightly. And also, too, if you hurt a noble person, that was much more serious than if you heard a slave. And in the Old Testament, it's not like that. The laws are the same. Now, we do need to distinguish between the different types of law. There was the ceremonial law, and this was for the temple and tabernacle worship, only for that time. Once Jesus came, those laws were done away with. There is a civil law, and that was primarily for how they were to live as a nation during those times. Now, even though we don't follow them precisely, much of our Judeo-Christian judicial system is built on the laws in the Old Testament. Finally, we have the moral law, and this is for all time. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not bear false witness. All of those types of laws continue. And then, many of the laws were repeated by Christ in the New Testament, and those are ones that we are supposed to keep. C.S. Lewis has a very interesting comment about the law, where he says, Now we cannot discover our failure to keep God's law, except by trying our very hardest, and then failing. Unless we really try, whatever we say, there will always be at the back of our minds the idea that if we try harder next time, we shall succeed in being completely good. Thus, in one sense, the road back to God is a road of moral effort, of trying harder and harder. But in another sense, it's not trying that is ever going to bring us home. All this trying leads up to the vital moment at which you turn to God and say, you must do this. I can't. Galatians 2.16 says, here is what we know. No one is made right with God by obeying the law. It is by believing in Jesus Christ. And again, in Ephesians 2, eight and 9, it says, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's important to make the point that obeying the law for the children of Israel did not determine their salvation. God had saved them by grace when they came out of Egypt, but the law was showing them how they could live in fellowship with him. So don't ever think that there's a different way for people to get saved in the Old Testament and a different way in the New Testament. No, both are by God's grace. But then we want to obey what he tells us to do so that we can live in fellowship with him, live a life that is pleasing to him. Now the next test for the children of Israel is when they get to the promised land and 12 spies are sent to the land to check things out now they came back to Moses and he says we went up to the land you sent us to it really is wonderful all the milk and honey and the fruit of the land and they have this huge thing of grapes and then they said but the people who live there are powerful Their cities have high walls around them and are very large. We even saw members of the family of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev Desert. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live near the Mediterranean Sea. Caleb interrupted them and said, We should go up and take it. We can certainly do it. But the majority of the group responded in this way. But... The people who live there are powerful. Their cities have high walls around them and are very large. We even saw members of the family of Anak there. The Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites. Pause there for a second. Where have you heard those names before? Remember early on, just a little over a year ago, where they defeated the Amalekites and God said I am going to defeat all of these other people and he listed them by name they're the same group of people and God had said I will take care of it but they forgot what God said and they said we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and that's how we seem to them they discouraged the people and the people backed away from going into the land the people rebel and then they try to repent But it is so tragic here because it was too late. They then tried to go in without God's blessing and they were defeated. This is a very bad example of what happens if you can get into the pattern of complaining and not trusting God. They weren't happy about the hard times that they were having right from the start. They complained about the food. They complained about the water. They complained about the leadership. They complained about absolutely everything. And you see what happens is this lack of thankfulness, this constant complaining created a pattern that when the real test came of when they needed to trust God, they didn't know how to do it. They had to wander in the desert for 40 years. Their children suffered because of their sins, but their children were the ones that went into the land. Their children did not hesitate when their time came. Now, a huge, huge warning for us. Again, C.S. Lewis has, I think, a great statement that he makes where he says, Good and evil Both increase at compound interest. That's why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is a capture of a strategic point from which, a few months later, you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of an apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or railway line or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. This is, is so critical because we have to look at our lives day by day. It's the little obedience that makes for great victories when the hard times come. There, There's a uh, saying that I read on, on one of the different things online this week where it said set big goals but design for yourself little wins. And what one might say is we have a big goal of wanting to please God, wanting to be a disciple of Jesus, but a little win is being kind to the people that we live with each day, to our families, to the people at work. That's how we're supposed to live. Some final applications. In Leviticus 22, 31, it says, Keep my commandments and follow them. I am the Lord. Do not profane my holy name, for I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. And in the New Testament, it says, it tells us in 1 Peter 2, 9, But you, that's Christians today, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. God is forming us to be a people, his forever people, and we don't even know what that means. But we want to follow him as closely as we can. To do that, keep reading, learning, studying, listening to these podcasts, doing everything that you can to be a better follower. And don't get discouraged when you mess up. Again, one last quote by C.S. Lewis. I, I just love this one. It says, no amount of falls will really undo us if we keep on picking ourselves up each time. We shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home. But the bathrooms are already the towels put out, and the clean clothes are in the airing cupboard. I love that image, because sometimes no matter how I try, I feel like I'm kind of one of those muddy and tattered children. And and as I was thinking about that, I was also reminded of that wonderful hymn, Grace has brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson and the other materials at Bible805.com. And until next time, I'm Yvonne Prent, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.